This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sue Miller, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, this world of COVID um, has given us some positives. Um, you're over in Vermont and I'm here in Sydney and mm-hmm. we're able to have a chat. I mean, we didn't have this technology. I mean, it was available, but Better Reading wasn't using this technology pre-COVID. Until the virus arrived. Yeah. I'll introduce you um, and then you can tell me how this has affected your life as an author. Sue Miller is a critically acclaimed and truly loved by readers. Uh, She's recognised internationally for her elegant and sharply realistic accounts of the contemporary family. Her books have been widely translated and published in 22 countries around the world. The Good Mother in 1986, the first of her 10 novels, spent over six months on the New York Times bestseller list, and two novels have been turned into films. Sue has taught fiction, at among others, at Tufts, Boston University, Smith and MIT, and her numerous honours include a Guggenheim and a Radcliffe Institute Fellowship. I, I do love a contemporary fiction story, and Monogamy was one of them, which is why we're here today to talk about your new book, Monogamy. Firstly, tell me we were talking about this before we started recording. How has COVID affected writers? Tell me how it's affected you as a writer in terms of a book release. It's sort of odd. I mean, I don't know yet how it will affect the book release, but, but I know that I'm scheduled to do a lot of these Zoom things. So that will be one, one effect of it. The, I had, the book was sort of in this limbo between they're taking it and it's being published at the time that COVID did arrive. And so I, I felt completely in limbo because I'm not working on anything right now. And here's this sort of isolation. But on the other hand, we're not living very differently from the way we always live, which is to stay home most of the time, not to, you know, we're, we're sociable enough, but, you know, to be solitary, essentially. And I think that's true for most writers. And so their lives have not changed that, that much as, as have the lives of people who used to go into an office or, uh, you know, some other work location that they had to be in. I mean, I'm still sort of behaving the same way I did. I wish I were working that I'm not doing, uh, but that has nothing to do with the COVID virus. And I have friends who are working very hard, actually. And I think it gives them, it'll be interesting to see what subject matter comes out of this period of time. How many people, take on the COVID virus directly or take on the politics around it directly or take on, uh, you know, some notion of solitude or loneliness or isolation directly. I just, it'll be quite fascinating. And then some people will probably not address it at all. Their work is focused on something else anyways. With the authors that I've spoken with in the last couple of months, they have said uh, the same thing as you, Sue, that really their lives haven't changed that much because they were solitary people. And a lot of them haven't really minded not going out on tour. (laughs) 
Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, usually uh, authors are shy people as well. And then, you know, we ask them to be solitary while they're writing. And then, you know, we want them to switch a switch on and go out and be completely social and personable and yeah. high entertainment. So difficult to manage. Anyway, um, no, I think that I would, most of the writers that I've talked to feel that way. Um, there are a few garrulous souls who are also writers and are just sort of heartbroken. <laughs> But it is a solitary. I think people don't really realize when they think about writers that it is just terribly unglamorous and terribly solitary and just a lot of staying in a room with, in my case, a pen and a piece of paper or a little book, which is what I write in. You handwrite still. I do. Yeah, the first first draft. And then I type it in and then I pull it out and handwrite over it and type that in. And so I end up wasting an enormous amount of paper, basically. But... Actually, I was teaching at MIT when the use of computers, personal computers, just was beginning to come in. It was in the 80s. And I had a student who was studying um, the way language, the use of language changed on the computer as opposed to the typewriter or uh, writing longhand. And it terrified me, the idea that there might be a change in my work that I was not in control of or conscious of. And that was part of what um, drove me away from wanting to do it. I didn't work, work on a computer until fairly recently. But it's amazing in terms of, I mean, I, I used to, you know, my manuscripts were just crusted with white out and very thick. And, and yeah. sort of, I can imagine that process is almost like an editorial process, right? Oh, Handwriting, yeah. then typing, then, ha- you know, making the uh, adjustments and then doing it again. I'm not a writer, but if I find if I write, even a handwritten note and I'm going to email it to someone, it will change from, yeah. won't it? Absolutely, yeah. So anyway, I've, I, I use, the, I'm grateful to the computer, but I don't use it at all uh, for the first draft or the second draft. I mean, I use it to type, you know, typed versions of things. They're like books. They're, you have to be, you feel more responsible. And I feel writing in longhand is very provisional and is less terrifying to me uh, than typing is somehow. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So talk to me about where you grew up and what led you to writing. I really love this part of the podcast when I kind of talk to writers about how they came to be because it's so unique. There is a common link, I think, in most of the writers that I talk to in that they were somehow, they were solitary readers. Some of them did the experiences come from angst, but a lot of them, no, it it was just that that, that's who the person they were and they love to read and they love to spend time on their own. And that seems to be a common thread in writing. So talk to me about you, where you grew up and how it is that you came to write. I always wrote. I mean, even as a little kid, sappy poems and, uh, and uh, so I was just kind of, it wasn't anything I ever thought of as uh, something I could have, be a professional at. I didn't conceive of it that way at all, but it was just something I did. And I grew up in a very bookish family, but I was the bookish, bookishest of them all, I must say, except for um, my father, who was a scholar. He, was a, he taught um, church history and theology at the University of Chicago uh, Theological Seminary. And then the last, he, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary for for the last years of his teaching career. But we, I grew up in Chicago, basically, in the south side of Chicago. Actually, our house was uh, really probably just a mile from where Barack Obama still has his house, although he never goes there anymore, I guess. Is it, um, is it where Michelle Obama lives? Is she well, they're living in, still in Washington now. I no, think. no, where she grew up. 
Oh, yes, it's close to where she grew up. She, mm-hmm. she grew up in the, I mean, the, the University of Chicago was sort of surrounded by ghettos, essentially. In, so, in some cases, black communities that were not ghetto, but it was surrounded by black communities, some of which were really um, Im- impoverished and in difficulty. But that was not the case for her. She lived in a kind of um, sort of middle class uh, part, of, part of the ghetto, essentially. So, but very close to where we lived. And it was a different era then, you know, we, uh, parents didn't supervise you at all. And mm-hmm. so you just went out and sort of, we rode bikes. We rode all the way downtown from the south side of Chicago sometimes. Um, and we lived very close to the lake. So we had this lovely sort of freedom um, to, um, just there were tons of kids in the street. It was sort of the post-war era and we sort of were in charge of ourselves. What's more, the parents all drank a whole lot in that period of time. It was, you know, the late forties into the fifties and my, my, and there were all these people, faculty up and down the street. So they'd be in and out sort of drinking away at the end of the afternoon and you'd have to go find them to get them to come home and make your dinner sort of essentially. (laughs) I mean, I usually got sent, you know, they said my brother and my sister, not my younger brother, you go down and get her. (laughs) So that was my job to interrupt the, co- the ongoing and everlasting cocktail party. But it was, a, it was a wonderful kind of growing up. But I was solitary within that. I mean, I had very socially successful siblings, and, and I was really not. I mean, I had one, usually one good friend at a time, and that was it. But I was very happy reading and feeling actually feeling a little isolated from my family. And I think a lot of writers have that, where they sort of, observe their family more carefully than the other members. I mean, I've compared notes with my siblings and I'm, I'm really much more, I was really much more conscious of what was going on than they were at the time, I think. And that's... I've done that recently too. I mean, I grew up in uh, where my, my parents were Lebanese. My parents are Lebanese and they came to Australia in the 50s and we were very, very poor. We were immigrants in the city and my childhood memories are fantastic. I, I just remember the happiness and joy that I had. But if, and I'm one of six, but, but you know, when I talk to my siblings, they don't all see it that way. Like, it's yeah. different perceptions. But I think with writers in particular, um, you kind of live in your head for a, a large part of the day, don't you? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And sort of review things. But, you know, anyway, I just, that was the way I was from the start, I think. I was sort of ponderous yes. as, a, as a child, I think. And, you know, not my, my two siblings directly around me were very gregarious and outgoing, and I sort of stuck between them, sort of more or less the middle child, and a bit later the fourth came along. Can you remember, Sue, what you were reading at the time? What was it that you loved the most? Um, my favourite book was Jane Eyre, which I read for the first time when I was about 12, and I just reread it and reread it and reread it and wept. Wept. <laughs> I read it because I loved to weep, I think, <laughs> in part. So, and, you know, I sort of read the standard nurse, Cherry Jones, or somebody like that. I can't remember uh, books that my mother would get out of the library for us. I also read sort of a lot of nonfiction at that time, sort of biographies of people. Anna Pavlova, I read a biography of. I can remember oh, that. Wow. Yeah, and I liked sort of long, convoluted, interesting things. Um, Kristen Lavrin's La- 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 Daughter was one of my, by Sigrid Unsett, was one of my favorite books too. Um, you know, anyway, I just read. I read a yeah. lot. So then you went through to your schooling. Did you stay in Chicago? Where did you go to school? Well, I stayed in Chicago until I went to college and I went yeah. to Harvard. 
and I went very young, too young, I think. So that was the experience was really sort of wasted on me in a certain way. I didn't learn very much in college. I was sort of away from home for the first time and sort of overwhelmed by the, the college itself, by the university itself there. So I didn't feel as though I really started to learn things until after I graduated. I think that that's true for a lot of people. You're yeah. so young in those years, aren't you? Yeah, you're trying to master so many other things besides, I mean, I certainly have friends who did wonderfully well in college, loved it and that sort of thing. But just, I don't think it was the right place for me to be at that time. I was 16. Yeah, <gasps> yeah wow. I was just correct. <laughs> so I didn't, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, academically gifted or anything like that. Uh, but I started, I mean, I'd written, I actually won a, what, what's called a National Scholastic Award Um with a short story when I was in high school, I suppose 15 or so. And that's something that a lot of um, American writers who later became famous won. So I felt I, I sort of joined this group. I didn't know that at the time, but John Updike won one and Joyce Carol Oates won one and Truman wow. won one. So it was a really good great, company. Great <laughs> so I'd probably never heard of any of them. Well, Joyce Carol Oates isn't that much older than I am, I don't think. So I wouldn't have heard of her at all. But um, it, that encouraged me, of course. It was and thrilled me um, to some degree, and I just kept writing. I, in my early twenties, I, I got married very young too. At twenty, uh, in my early twenties, I wrote a terrible, terrible novel, which I never showed to anyone. And then I had a child, and then I got divorced, and then I had to make my living in some way. And I worked for about ten or twelve years, and with kids, little children, because in part because it got me home in time to be home for my son, whom I had custody of. And then at a certain point when he was sort of not in my brain so much, I mean, you know, he was just everything to me for a long time. And, and then suddenly he was moving away from me. I mean, he just became sort of psychologically a separate person, uh, which he was all along, but I didn't know it. Um, I just didn't think of him as much as I used to. And I felt freer. I felt that I was in charge of my, my internal life in a way that I did, hadn't, hadn't been in his very young days. So I just started to write again. I wrote a second novel, which never got published either. But I think I was more conscious of what I was doing and not doing. And I think I was learning essentially how not to write a novel. I say this a lot on this podcast and not being a writer, I could probably say it with more confidence than writers, but it's practice, right? It is. I mean, when, you, when you're writing short stories, for instance, you don't expect the first yeah. short story you write to be publishable or anything, uh, or even very good. And you learn by doing it. But it's just that it's so much more painful to discard a, a novel, which has taken you, you know, maybe two years or something like that, as opposed to a short story, which mm. doesn't take that long. But at any rate, I think I really, I had started to publish a few short stories by then. By then I was, I'm, I'm talking about now being in my late 30s. And I published some short stories, mostly in little literary magazines. Uh, but then I finally got one published in the Atlantic a monthly, what it was now the Atlantic, but, um, and I think that helped me get a fellowship that gave me a year away from work in an office away from home. And it's, it was a wonderful fellowship that was for women who were at a certain stage in their careers where they needed the time to do significant work, mostly academics, so that they could move on, perhaps get tenure somewhere. In my case, it was just, I hoped I would get published. And in fact, that the, the book I wrote during that year was called The Good Mother. Oh, wow. And it, published in, in, it was my first published novel, and it got published in 1986. So I was 43 by then. And that novel <laughs> did better than any 
that I've ever published since. I mean, it just sort of skyrocketed. And so if you graphed my career, it would go sort of out of nowhere and then just up like this and then slowly notch downward over the years, essentially. Um, you know, I think I had just learned how to make a book, finally. Um, uh, why do you think The Good Mother resonated with people? You know, and this is something else that we talk about on the podcast. I feel that you can tell readers what to read, which is what we do. We don't tell. We recommend if you like. But it's the story that carries itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed that within a day of us releasing a review or even just a, a letting people know that a book is published or whatever, you start to get a feel for whether that story has resonated. Whether Because mm-hmm. I feel as though you can spend a million dollars promoting a book, but if that story doesn't hold its own, it won't stick with readers. Yeah. And why do you think The Good Mother stuck to that level? There's, there's, there's got to be something in it. Well, I think it was, as all my books have been since, sort of very much focused on character. Uh, so that the, I think the main character in that book felt very real to people. And well, it was your experience, so it was authentic. It wasn't exactly my experience. but I mean, this is about a woman who loses custody, and I never yes. lost and uh, and that was sort of the central event of it, and who goes through a really horrendous custody trial, which I never went through either. But I was really interested in um, the sort of the way, so it's very plotted. So it has a great onrushing dramatic story that it's telling it. The story of a woman who's divorced from a sort of sterile marriage, and then meets a man that she just falls madly in love with, an artist, of course. And sort of exposes her daughter to too much of their sex life together, um, accidentally, whatever. And her husband sort of, uh, when the child is visiting him at some point, the child talks about it a little bit. and He picks up on it and, and starts a custody. So there's this, that's sort of the way it launches itself. Then there's actually, a, you know, multiple courtroom scenes as, the, as this custody suit uh, continues. And I really um, did a lot of research on that and went and sat on civil, you know, in civil trials. Uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and just watched horrible events happen in people's lives as I just sat there taking yeah. notes. Um, no, I don't mean that, you know, know that you didn't have that experience, but you had the experience. You were in it and you lived that for a while. And I think versus someone that hasn't, that gives you a perspective, even though, I mean, you're writing fiction, of course, mm-hmm. but there is something I find from books like that. The, the last time it happened to me is when I read Anne Pratchett's Commonwealth. Mm. I love that book. There is an essence of truth in that fiction. There is something that's come from her and her observation in her life Mm -hmm. that brings the fiction story an authenticity, if you like. And Mm -hmm. I think The Good Mother is that. I think, you know, in some of my books, I've sort of focused on writing about something that terrifies me and the idea of losing custody of my son, uh, which didn't happen to me. But it was a very frightening thing. And I, I think some, in some ways I wanted to deal with those hard things fictionally as a, as a sort of way of holding them off from myself, really preventing their magical way of preventing their ever happening to me. This was sort of after the fact. It was very clear I had custody of my son when I was writing it. But I had been terrified that at any moment my custody could be interrupted during when he was younger. Yeah. Um, I had a vengeful husband. Um, and I think that some of it sprang from that, from that understanding of how horrible it would be, um, how, how sort of personally destructive it would be, as it was for, for that character. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. To really have a debut fiction novel that takes off like that, as you know, is like winning the lottery, right? You know, it doesn't happen that often. (laughs) So tell me, how did you feel about that? I mean, what was at that time? You know, here you are, your first book's out and you're hoping 10 people buy it and instead millions of people buy it. Yeah. And I, I, there were, I mean, it of course was wonderful news in some ways. I mean, financially it was wonderful and it was wonderful. I only slowly realized that it was going to be a great success, but it also interrupted a life that I thought I was in charge of that. I thought, you know, I thought I would be forever teaching because that's how I began to, once I'd published some short stories, then I could begin to teach. And the Boston area is great for that. I'd had so many friends who were writers who were also just making their living teaching because there's, writing programs in a number of universities, a tremendous number of universities in the city. And I liked that sense of my life. I had just gotten married and I, I just sort of felt I knew and I was in charge of my life. And then this well, sort of gold-plated monkey wrench essentially got thrown into it. I mean, there's not a lot to complain of, except it was startling and confusing and complicated many things in my life. So, um, I, in a life that I thought I knew the contours of going forward for a long time. What um, were some of the complications? It just, it was just difficult, even with friends, I mean, who were writers, it sort of I, separated mm. me to some, from, mm. from some people, not all people. And my husband was also a writer and that it was complicating too, obviously. I mean, in t- I mean I'm, I'm not suggesting that you know, uh, writing books brings people a lot of money, but it must have relieved some financial pressure from being a single mum. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I just always trying to get a job at this college and that college and trying Mm -hmm. to put enough of them together because you didn't make much teaching a semester to, to sort of make a way below average income. Um, So it did, it relieved all of that. Plus I bought a whole new bunch of underwear, which I think... (laughs) underwear that I, you know, it was just practically falling off my body. So anyway, lovely, elastic. Yeah, lovely, lovely, lovely. I like that. Um, So then there lies another problem. How do you write a second book? I mean, that's a problem. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, I knew from, I knew I didn't want to write that same kind of book again, sort of, I was stuck in a first person. So I was inside just one person's perspective the whole time. So I, I set out to write something very, very different, and I did. And it didn't do as well as The Good Mother, but it did just fine, thank you. Yeah. And it was called Family Pictures, and it took up a family of six people. 
and the focus on four of them quite closely, actually. Um, and it was a family into which um, an autistic son is born. And it sort of traces the way that affects everybody over 40 years. I mean, it really takes the, the characters from childhood to sort of beginning or launched into their adult lives. So it couldn't have been more different. And um, it took a long time to write. I think it was, uh, you know, the first book that I had written that was anything like that, that was that complicated. And, um, and then also my father was very ill then and dying of uh, Alzheimer's disease and so forth. And I was the one kind of um, not in charge of him because he was in a place with, which was taking care of him. But I was the one sibling that was close to him, physically could get to him every day. Mm-hmm. And the others are in the American way, scattered all over the, the country. And mm-hmm. he had to be by one of us. And I was the one. So it just was a hard time, you know, but also, I, I mean, I had the work, which was nice to be able to, to return to. It. So I'm trying to imagine it. So you've, you've had this huge success with your first novel and then you're writing the second. People talk about writer's block and there's anxiety and there's all sorts of mm-hmm. things. But I'm, I'm kind of interpreting your response as that you put that to one side and then you started like from the beginning again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of research to be done yeah. and, and a lot of characters to manage and then a lot of decisions to make as I was going along. So um, it was completely, completely took over my life, that book, for, for mm. those years, for, of course, for my, my life with my father and my son and my husband. But, um, but I was just utterly committed to him. And one of the ways that I work is to make a huge num- amount of notes beforehand, a huge number of notes, and to really sort of figure out what I want the book to do what I want it to mean, if, if I can manage that. And so I just feel very committed to each book before I start to, to really work on it. And I was just completely believed in that book and committed to it. So as I had with The Good Mother and as I've done with others too, so that when I do hit bumps in the writing or something terrible like my father's death happens in the middle of it, I have this thing I want to do that's already there in my own mind. Mm. Of the amount of have you ever kind of done had a book in your head and done the research and written the notes and then it didn't happen like it couldn't it didn't become the story that you wanted it to be I mean even with the with family pictures my second novel I got about 200 pages in and showed it to uh, my literary agent and then also to my husband both of whom really had to say you know this this isn't working the way you want it to do and I just was crushed you know, wept and, but I knew that I could, that I wanted to make it work. So I just put that all aside and sort of came at it from a different angle entirely, began it in a different place, but it was all the same characters. And it was the same sort of long story of this family. It's just that I had started it before the, the drama of the, of the family began, essentially. Yeah. And it just started in a different place. Talk to me about monogamy. I mean, huge subject, I've got to say. But um, in reading it, to me, it's about reflection as well, reflection as an adult woman. Well, I, I, it, it actually came from the experience of my father, in effect, because I wrote a book about him after his death. It took me 10 years, and I would stop and turn back to fiction, which I just was so grateful for because it's very, really hard to write that book for many reasons, including that it was a very sorrowful book, but I just, I didn't know how to structure it. Basically. I didn't know how to, it was a complicated book, but at any rate, in doing the um, sort of the research for that and talking to my father's friends and, and getting letters from them and then looking through his papers and so forth, I just came to sort of understand him in a different way. I had a kind of new 
acquaintance with him, as it were. It just was so interesting to me to sort of feel as though he had, he had been in touch with me somehow in a, in a way after his death, and that had changed my sense of him, and it had changed, of course, my sense of myself as his daughter. And I wanted to sort of write about that experience. I had no idea how to do it, really. But that was what was central in this book for me, was sort of the very end of it in a certain way, when Annie sort of discovers through her sorrow a, a different way of thinking about everything. And so that's what I mean when I say that it comes from somebody like a, you know, a, a maturity, I think. You couldn't have written that book 20 years ago, could you? Probably not, no. No, yeah. because you look at it differently from a perspective of your own experience, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. At any rate, um, I made a false start on this one too. And you did? I did. I was writing in um, Annie's voice after the main character, Graham, had died. And it's not giving away too much to say no. the Graham, of course, of the book. Um, so that it, the sort of the first person narrative was sort of saturated in sorrow and it kind of didn't have very much energy. And so I just stopped and then decided I would start with Graham alive. <laughs> and his, his energy sort of was lifted me up. I mean, he, I enjoyed writing about him and I realized that I needed that, you know, sort of pleasure in him and, you know, just liking him as much as I did and wanting to write about him in order to make the rest of it work. So he really starts the book, in effect. You're sort of with him as he's just thinking about things and getting ready to go meet, you know, to work at his bookstore, which he loves, and to meet a friend for lunch and to talk about mistakes he's made and, and um, resolve to be a better person. And, and, and you sort of get a lot of Annie in that too. You get a sense of their marriage from the start, the way they're Actually, they're sort of worried about each other, but you get a sense of their great love for each other in the nature of the worrying and the concern. So it worked, you know, again, it, I, I needed to sort of rethink my way into the material in order to make it work. And from then on, I felt just fine. Did I read somewhere that it took you six years to write this? It did, yeah. And but, is that uh, normal for you? Can't no, be. No, not <laughs> Can't because you, you'd be 100 now, would you? <laughs> I'm getting up there. The Family Pictures, the second novel, actually took four years. But this was unique. And some of it is that I have a granddaughter now, and so she comes and stays for long periods of time, and that's that. I mean, I'm not doing any work then. And then also my son lost custody of her, uh, and uh, she, well, her mother really took her away in the night um, and took her to Germany, where her mother's from. So there was just this horrendous shock, and, uh, you know, there was a, a a custody trial in this case, years after my imagined one, I mean, in a sort of horrible um, mm -hmm. coincidence. And uh, now she lives in Germany with her mother, but it's fine in the end. But it was just incredibly painful and just very preoccupying. And awesome. How old is she? She's now 12. Oh, lovely. Yeah, nice yeah. age. <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she's just been uh, in the States for, we barely got her out of Germany because of, we're such a, sort of pariah nation at this point. But my son, there's, there's a couple of reasons why a, an American person can come into the country, which they, we weren't sure he would be allowed to do. And then it was, you know, it was, everything was allowed. It, it seemed very wise and on their part, the German mm -hmm. government. He went over and got her and brought her back. And she was with us for six weeks. And then she had to be, as soon as she got back, she had to be tested before she could begin school, but she was fine. Mm. Well, that's distracting, isn't it? It's the ebbs and flows of your life that creates mm -hmm. the experience in the fiction, isn't it? It is, exactly, yeah. And I've always, um, you know, I think partly because I was a single mom, I, for a lot of years, for about 
13 years before I remarried. I always, I always just took time. If he needed something, I mean, then, then I just dropped everything to sort of um, be with him and to, to sort of try to be two parents at once, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm more used to interrupting myself at work. And I don't see it as a great liability. It sort of, it sort of pisses me off sometimes, but I don't, it's something that's just part of the way I've always worked. You could say too that it's the flexibility of the, the job. Uh, we've got to end, but I've got to say my favourite moment in our conversation, I'm just reflecting now, is when you said you realised that you were separate to your son. I like yeah. that. <laughs> I, li- I like that line as a, parent, as a parent because I think that that's just the way it is, but I think some people never get to that point. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. I had to. <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs> you did. Yeah. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. I'm amazed that we're done. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> we're done. Um, it has been lovely chatting with you. Um, congratulations on your book. And um, okay. I hope we can talk the next time. That we yeah, can. I hope it's not another six years. So, no. yeah, <laughs> well, thanks so much. All the best and stay safe. See you soon. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.